Hey, what's up? Hey man, thanks for coming over tonight. It's a great night for a campfire. The fireflies are out in force this summer. They're so surreal, like God's little flying organic LEDs. Yeah, that's the bullfrogs down at the creek. They're out in force tonight after the nice summer shower we had today. I'm telling you, my friend, it's going to be a good one. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to Guat.Rocks, God, the World, and Other Things. I'm Kenny Price, your host. Our mission, advancing equilibrium in the midst of an agitated world. Today's episode, episode 125, The Two Witnesses. This is a continuation of our Plain Revelation series. Remember, this series is meant to encourage you and to advance peace in your life. Today's topic is a very difficult topic to talk about. It's very stressful, but it's very needed. This is the topic of the two witnesses. The first 14 verses of chapter 11 are an interlude in the procession of the intensifying layers of judgment and encompasses the first half of the seven-year Great Tribulation period. It's also called 42 months or three and a half years. Remember that all of the outpouring of God's wrath that we have looked at so far is something that happens after this time period of the two witnesses. This is the Apostle John writing, And I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Here God gives John these instructions, but nothing is reported here about the outcome, and these two verses are a mystery as to what they fully mean. One thing we know for certain, God is taking measurements. That means he's giving an eye to detail. He's accounting for those who truly worship him. It also mentions the fact that the courtyard, which was the outer portion of the temple that was available to the Gentiles, God says, don't measure it. God also makes it clear that the Gentiles, which equates to those who don't know God, who don't know Jesus, that they will trample the holy city for 42 months. That means they're going to be destructive. They're going to rise up and rebel against Almighty God. Going on in verse 3, it says, I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. First of all, I want you to see before we go further in the chapter that These two witnesses are supernaturally, divinely empowered. We see the pronouncement. It says that I will grant my two witnesses. In other words, God claims ownership of these two people, and he's granting them to have authority to prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. They are witnesses. What are they witnesses of? They are witnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The Greek word from which we get our word martyr is used here. Here it definitely has a sense of meaning that it's going to cost the witnesses their life. It talks about that God gives them authority, and we're going to see that authority manifested in their divine power to execute actions against ungodly mankind. It says that prophecy, they're witnesses of prophecy. Their message is directly from God. The duration of their message and their time on earth is specific. It's going to be 1260 days. 
which is exactly three and a half years, which is the same time as the rise of Antichrist to power. Notice their clothing. It says sakos. That's sackcloth. It means a coarse cloth made of normally goat or camel hair. The fabric from which a sack is made is usually dark in color. So here the suit is to be worn as a mourning garment. Their power supply and source, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Their words and clothing speak God's message. Keep in mind that this is during the time when the entire world will come together under the person they accept as the promised Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah of God who will set himself up before the people as God and demand their worship, all enforced by the power of execution, provision, peace, and miracles. So as the world falls for the ultimate lie of history, these two supernaturally powered prophets will be proclaiming the truth of God to this condemned world. Notice their position. It says that they stand before the Lord of the earth. They are in the presence of the Lord's throne and a manifestation to the world that it all still belongs to God and it is all still under God's control. Notice their potency. It says that their mouths are flame-throwing. They have flame-throwing mouths that kill, unleash plagues, unleash the polluting of waters, and holding back of rain. And it says that all as often as they want, the supposed God who sits on the throne in Jerusalem can do nothing to them until their time is complete. Picking up in verse 7, the martyring of the witnesses. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. I want you to see how these two witnesses identify with the suffering of Christ. The two prophetic witnesses are Christ-like in their death. Their righteousness slaughtered, though purposefully left to rot in the street rather than placed in a tomb like our Lord. In a macabre, satanic, lying in state, people from all parts of the world will come to pass by the rotting corpses of the two prophets. Lying in state is the tradition in which the body of a dead official is placed in a state building either outside or inside a coffin, to allow the public to pay their respects. It traditionally takes place in the principal government building of a country, state, or city. The two witnesses will lie in the main street of Jerusalem in state. Jerusalem will be the capital city of the government of the Antichrist, where the Antichrist will have his throne in the rebuilt temple. The people who had been tormented by the two witnesses of God break into a satanic Christmas of sorts, and celebrate the death of the two prophets with the exchange of gifts. Keep in mind, in the reign of Antichrist on earth, the earth will finally achieve the peace it has always longed for. It is a false peace forced on the people built on death and deprivation if you choose to resist. The false peace is going to be achieved by the consent of all the world rulers to lay down their arms and turn over their allegiance and the control of their governments to Satan which Satan has always wanted to see publicly manifested as seen in his temptation of Christ to worship him. We read about that in Matthew chapter 4. So through the murders, the world will view their deaths as an eradication of evil instigators of dissension, instability, and destruction of the reign of the pseudo-man of peace. In other words, everything is going to be flipped. The entire scene of the martyrdom of the two prophets, the desecration of their bodies, and the sadistic celebration is perverse and bent on destruction. I think back to 1980, that failed rescue attempt of the 52 American hostages held in the American embassy in Iran, 
I remember the charred bodies pulled from that crashed helicopter that were put on public display in the streets of Iran, and the Iranians danced in celebration around the charred bodies laid out on sheets of plywood. It is amazing to me that after much search for this particular part of the failed rescue story, I can find no, I mean I can find zero, no photographs that were displayed of those remains back in 1980, and no direct reports about the specifics of that particular part of the incident that was all over the magazines and news reports of the day. Clearly, there has been an effort to scrub history of this fact. I'm not making that up. You see if you can find it. It does not exist. My friend, mark this down. Humans will not be able to redact the horrific thing they do by murdering the two witnesses of Almighty God. God is telling on them now. Their wicked and perverse actions will come to pass in God's providential timing, but their actions will be thwarted, resulting in the sealing of their destiny to torment and eternal destruction that is about to be unleashed upon them in the second half of the Great Tribulation. Here is a major point of peace that we must allow to absorb into our minds. The wicked have their way for a time, but it is only an illusion cast upon them by the Holy God who is getting ready to crush them eternally. They will not, in the court of heaven, be able to bring one slanderous charge against the mercy, grace, and offer of salvation extended to them to the very end because of their fallenness and their overt, perverse, wicked rejection of his witness and call, they will deservingly be cast into an eternal lake of fire. Picking up in verse 11, the witnesses are resurrected. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Friends, see the fact that the two witnesses are invincible. The entire time of their prophesying, they are invincible. The Antichrist is able to finally kill them, only to experience the terrifying event of their rotting corpses come to life. Rotting flesh made new. Lungs that begin to draw in fresh air. Legs that stand upright, then caught up into heaven in a cloud like Elijah and Jesus. Their resurrection and ascension is accompanied by a destructive earthquake in the city that kills 7,000 people. Yet no repentance from the evil people of this world in spite of the outright overt acts of real deity. Notice the insane behavior of the people. They are totally non-repentant, yet acknowledge that all of this came from the God of heaven. Their reasoning is sadistic and perverse and lost. Finally, in verse 14, it says, the second woe is past. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. Friend, think about what I have just shared with you. Hollywood produces all of the superhero movies and presents them as fantasy. Yet, there's coming a day when two God-powered people are going to proclaim the gospel of God and the direct messaging of God to the entire world of people regarding their present condition and their future destination and the two witnesses will be impervious to any weapon or technology that would seek to kill them. No limited nuclear device, no space-based laser, no Abrams tank to blast or run over them, no submersion in water or hypersonic jet to fly through them will permeate their shield of protection given by Almighty God. Throughout history, there has been an inordinate amount of attention given to the rise of Antichrist to power and his perceived reign of terror. But the truth is... It is God Almighty who unleashes his two witnesses 
who with supernatural power proclaimed the prophetic message of God throughout the entire reign of the Antichrist, torturing the wicked with plagues and drought, and burning to death anyone who stands in their way with fire that shoots from their mouths. Keep in mind, the fire is not just standard fire, as is obvious in the fact that it comes from the human mouth, which is a supernatural act. Plus, it kills the people who fight against them regardless of what type of shield or covering they might use, be it armored aircraft, fighter jet, or spaceship. Friend, the entire seven-year period of the Great Tribulation is God's time. It's His show. It's His time to shine and be glorified, not the devil's. In closing, I want to share with you several thoughts, and it's kind of an amalgamation. It's a hodgepodge, but it all comes to bear on what I've shared with you today. The first is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with all that is good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Glory belongs to him forever and ever. Amen. Friend, because Jesus Christ has resurrected from the dead, and his salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection has been imparted to us, the Bible says that he has equipped us to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, But we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 says, My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Bible commentator Leon Morris writes, The church is a powerful church only when it is a penitent church. A comfortable, easy-minded church has no power to stir the world either to salvation or the opposition. The faithful preaching of the gospel is never soothing to the impenitent. Even in the earthly reign of Antichrist, the gospel will be faithfully proclaimed to all the earth by these two prophets. Thomas Forsyth Torrance, in his 1960 book, The Apocalypse Today, on page 85, makes this statement, and he asks a pertinent question to us today, and this is a heavily quoted quote, and so it's very important. He asks, why does the church of Jesus Christ today sit so easy to her surroundings? Why do Christian people live such comfortable and such undisturbed lives in this evil and disturbed world? Surely it is because we are not true to the word of God. Friend, what if, what if all of the pastors of the Christian churches in the world today, today stopped sitting easy to their surroundings, stopped living such comfortable and undisturbed lives, and were truly penitent and faithfully preached the gospel and stirred the world to either salvation or opposition by their bold and faithful witness? What if? I tell you what if. I tell you what would happen. Just if the pastors alone repented and start living the gospel the way Christ expected, this present age of massive outpouring of unrestrained evil and mass delusion would come to a screeching halt. 
The march of Satan across the globe that is destroying people and casting them into an eternal hell would retreat, and he would be put back in his place. Presently, we see a vastly off-kilter scale of evil like the world has never witnessed before. If all the world's pastors alone repented and became God-powered witnesses now, anarchy would cease and rule of law would resume. You can mark it down, my friend. God's blessings would pour out on our earth and the massive flooding, earthquakes, droughts, plagues, disasters, murders, and anarchy would subside. Dear friend, in spite of all that is presently happening, it is not too late for rescue. Let the repentance start with each of us individually. Let us reach out to our pastors in boldness and church leaders and call them to repentance if they have become at ease in this world, to call on them to be the pastors of the flock, to call on them to rise up in boldness, to be a witness for Christ in every decay in their sphere of influence. And God will relent from this time of judgment we are in, and He will give us peace. And with that, my friend, I bid you peace.